Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator Murphy is a leading voice on a range of issues, from job creation to health care to foreign affairs. But he is also one of the strongest voices in Congress today fighting to strengthen gun laws. When he was a member of the House, he represented Newtown, the site of the horrific and heartbreaking shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. We talk about his fight for sensible gun laws, the recent tragedy at Oxford High School in Michigan, and his book called The Violence Inside Us. In 2016, Senator Murphy co-authored the Mental Health Reform Act, the largest overhaul of mental health laws in a generation, ensuring that mental health treatment is accessible for all Americans while keeping the cost fair to everyone. And the senator has also taken an active role in foreign affairs. He chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism, and he was a leading voice on Iraq and on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The senator and I talk about his time in Washington and his time in the Connecticut State House before that. We talk about what it means to be a staffer, and we also talk about his experience as a staffer, as a campaign manager to a congressional campaign early in his career. We recorded this episode on Monday, December 6th. I hope you enjoy it. Senator Murphy, welcome to Staffer. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, Thanks for having me. It is really a pleasure and an honor to have you. Um, You being a former staffer and someone who relies on staff work, you are really a perfect person uh, to be talking with and for our listeners to hear from. As, as you may know, with these interviews, I like to understand the pathways that people took from being a staffer to wherever they are today. And I like to start at the beginning. So if you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what family life was like. Um, well, listen, uh, Jim, great to uh, see you and be with you today. Um, for those listening, we've known each other for a long time. And so it's great to um, be in this conversation with you. Um, so uh, for me, uh, it starts in Weathersfield, Connecticut. That's where I grew up. It's where my parents uh, still live. Um, I now live uh, a stone's throw away from where I grew up, one town over. Um, and, um, you know, I had in many ways, you know, a very idyllic upbringing, economically secure, went to a, you know, pretty typical middle class public uh, school system. Um, had two brothers, uh, one brother, one sister. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot of lessons when I was growing up. My mom grew up very, very poor, uh, a few towns over public housing. Her family was sort of, you know, being chased by bill collectors. Her upbringing um, was very different than mine. And so, you know, one of the things I remember from growing up was, you know, A, how easy I had it, but um, how my mother reminded me that, you know, that was just luck, um, that her luck was different than mine, and that she, you know, grew up in in very different circumstances, and that I shouldn't take you know, any of my relative security for uh, for granted. Um, an apolitical family. Um, I think my parents were registered Republicans. Uh, they probably voted for more Democrats than Republicans. My father was nominally involved locally. He was appointed to the planning and zoning commission of my town. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, politics was not necessarily something we were talking about at the, at the dinner table growing up. That was, uh, as my father says, a recessive gene, um, <laughs> that prompted me to uh, show interest at an early age in that, uh, field. 
So how did that manifest? So wh- where did you sort of meet public affairs, uh, you know, in your in your youth? Like, how did you how did you catch the bug? I think it's, you know, I think it's two pieces to the story. One, um, maybe three pieces. One is, I mean, I was an organizer by birth, right? I mean, I was the kid that organized the neighborhood touch football games. Um, you know, I, I was the one when the dress code you know, disallowed us to wear baseball hats in high school. I organized everybody to go protest. I mean, I just, I loved organizing and I don't know why, but that's just how I was born. Um Second, well, we didn't talk a lot about politics specifically. My mom had a very acute sense of outrage. I mean, my mom knew what was right and what was wrong, and she never hesitated to talk about it, the ways that people were behaving, um, the things that were going on in our town, um, kids that were getting mistreated at school. And so I, I certainly had you know, a strong sense of things that weren't going right and the obligation that we had to do something about it. Um, and then lastly, I was a huge sports kid, right? So competition was very attractive to me. And so at some point when I was 15 or 16 years old, I started paying attention to politics because it seemed to be a place where you did organizing. It seemed to be a place where wrongs were righted and it seemed to be a place where you won or lost. And that all was very attractive to me. And so one day I met a kid, um, sophomore year in high school whose mom worked at the state capitol. And I wanted to know everything about what she did and what her life was like. And it was that conversation um, that um, led to one thing, to another, to another. It's it's all one story, but um, it was it was that sort of series of influences that led me to just develop my own interest in government and politics, which ended putting ended up with me on this journey. Incredible. Well, I want to I want to talk about one of those early experiences. Um, you after high school, you went off uh, to Williams College. You also along the way uh, earned your law degree at the University of Connecticut Law School. One of your first professional experiences, at least political experiences that I know of, was as campaign manager to Charlotte Koskoff when she was running against Nancy Johnson, who then represented the 5th District of Connecticut in the House of Representatives. And it should be said, uh, for those who don't know, the 5th District uh, was and is swing district. Nancy Johnson had held on for many years, despite a lot of attempts uh, to unseat her by Democrats. And in that race in 1996, Charlotte Koskoff came close, but did not win. Can you talk about that race and what you took away from it as the campaign manager? Sure. Um, you know, this was a prototypical, underfunded, long shot congressional campaign, right? Nobody else wanted the nomination. Charlotte Koskoff was a college professor at Central Connecticut State University. She had run in 1994. Um, I had volunteered on her campaign as a college yeah. student in 1994, um, and and that in and of itself is is an interesting story. I was volunteering for my local state senator's campaign for governor the summer between my sophomore and junior year. He dropped out of the race, and I didn't really have anything to do. And I had met her uh, along the way at some event. I knew she had no money for staff, so I thought maybe she could use a volunteer. And I called her up out of the blue. I called her home phone 
um, uh, this, again, one of my college summers and offered to volunteer for her, which I did on her 1994 race that she lost by, she lost to Nancy Johnson by 40 points. Um, and so she liked the experience. She decided to run again in 1996. She had a little bit more money. So she hired me to sort of come on as one of two staff members. Um, the campaign manager eventually left. I think she selected me to take the place of the uh, of that campaign manager because she kind of thought she could run her own campaign if a 22-year-old was in charge. Um, and so she put me as the nominal campaign manager because, um, you know, she didn't think I'd get in the way of sort of the decisions she would make. Um, I knew I knew nothing. And so I just hired a whole bunch of other people who knew nothing. Um, I just hired a bunch of really hungry 20, 21, 22-year-olds, and we worked our tail off. We had $250,000 total. So we were just super creative, right, about how we campaigned. Um, uh, You know, we we, at the time, Nancy Johnson was uh, the chairwoman of the ethics committee, and she was um, stonewalling the ethics investigation into Newt Gingrich at the time, I think surrounding a book deal he had. And so we dressed a guy up in a giant stone wall costume, um, some styrofoam stone wall costume. It was enormous. He had to like walk through doorways sideways. And we had him follow her around um, <laughs> as a means to get free publicity. So I guess I, I learned that, you know, hunger matters. Um, experience doesn't matter as much as you think. Creativity matters in political campaigns. And then lastly, authenticity matters. Charlotte Koskoff did not listen to her consultants. I mean, she barely had any because she didn't have any money. She just said what was on her mind. And she probably didn't match up most of the time with what voters wanted to hear, but they definitely knew it was her. They definitely knew that she was, um, you know, saying what was on her mind. They knew she didn't come across as a political figure because she wasn't. She'd never been elected to anything. And so I guess I learned that authenticity maybe matters more than anything else. Yeah. Wow. Um so after that race, which was a disappointment, but as you said, you really overperformed. I mean, it was a long shot and you came really close. You then worked uh, for state, then state Senate Majority Leader George Jepson, but in a short period of time decided that you yourself wanted to run for office. Um, and you decided to run for the Connecticut State House. And in 1998, you won the right to represent the 81st District. My question for you is that turn. When did you decide and and how did that kind of evolution happen where you thought, okay, I like working in politics, but I want to be on the other side of the desk? Yeah. I I mean, listen, I think it in part was just being around people like Charlotte Koskoff early in my career. That state senator I worked for, um, still around, uh, his name is Richard Balducci. Um, He was running for governor in 1994. I, I think I just met these fundamentally decent people who were in public life and making a difference. Um, and um, they were role models for me. I, I, the, the caricature of a politician that you know I and my friends had grown up with, especially those of us that weren't naturally around political figures, was untrue as far as I could tell, um, that maybe there were a few bad apples, but most of the folks I was working for, volunteering mostly at that point, um, were really good people who wanted to change the world. And that attracted me. Um, the second thing was I realized, um, you know, I really liked the work of persuading people. Um, 
I remember I had this rule when I was campaign manager for Charlotte's campaign that everybody on staff, I think there's only five of us, but everybody on staff on the weekends had to spend some time doing direct voter contact. You couldn't just sit in the office and tell other people to do it. You had to go do it. So um, I would go to the Southington uh, Stop and Shop. Uh, that's our big grocery store chain in Connecticut for a couple hours every Saturday and every Sunday. And I'd hand out flyers to people walking out with their shopping carts. And I remember being fascinated by this exercise, right? You had seven seconds, eight right. seconds right. to size that person up, to sort of figure out how you get the flyer in their hand, um, what to say to that person to engage them in a little bit longer conversation, understanding when you had to give up because at some point you were hurting your cause. To me, that was so fascinating, that, that small little moment that you had with someone to try to bury a message with them that they would think about later on. Um, and I knew I could do that, you know, from behind a desk, but man, I wanted to do it. I wanted to be the person that would try to change people's minds, that would try to convince people of something. And so I remember it was those days outside the stop and shop in which I thought, you know, boy, maybe I want to run for office because I love people. I love interacting with people. I love the the fight to try to get somebody to believe the thing that I believe in. And if I enjoy handing out flyers at a supermarket, then maybe this is the business for me. That experience of direct contact with voters, uh, as it's known in, in the parlance of politics, but talking with people in front of a stop and shop, the, the gap between that real interaction and writing a memo or writing some talking points for someone else to deliver is enormous. It's just so important to get right in there. So to your point, A, you are seeing and hearing how people talk and what they're saying and, and knowing that you have this narrow window to get your idea across in a way that will last with them. And, and, and I, you know, not to sort of fast forward, but, you know, it, it's been an obsession of mine, you know, throughout my career, which is uh, there's this danger both as a staffer and as a policymaker, but the danger is even higher as a policymaker, to sit behind the desk, to spend way too much time behind the desk, to think that you're actually talking to voters when you're looking into a camera with an earpiece. Yeah. Um, you're not. Um, you, And you're also not really listening to your constituents if you're just taking the incoming, right? Because it's the squeaky wheel that writes the letters and sends the emails and all that stuff matters to me. But, you know, I still take pains you know, to sit outside those supermarkets. Uh, I just spend a week every summer walking from one side of my state to the other state, just so like I did back in those early days as a staffer, I'm interacting with totally apolitical people, with people who really don't care about politics on a day-to-day -day basis like I do or like staff people do, um, so that you get a super organic feel about what matters to people. Well, it served you and continues to serve you well because you had a very successful career in the state house, first uh, in the house and then in the state Senate. Then you decided to run for Congress um, and you took on Nancy Johnson in the year 2006. Uh, it was a good year for Democrats, but that was a very tough uh, seat to win and to hold on to. That's where once you came to Washington in 2007, that's where you and I got to meet. Um Specific to this conversation, I'll just note, um, I remember being at one of your staff retreats and one of the diagrams that I think you put on the board was of what, um, like the, the, a hand diagram of somebody 
what 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 a voter wanted in their elected leader. Right. Right. And I it still was use this. It was a stick figure with gigantic ears. Ears. Yep. <laughs> so that, we still use that. We did this is our first our first campaign. We had uh, voters draw their ideal congressman. Draw it. Right now, that's a hard thing to draw, right? Because most of the things you want are not things you can put down on paper. But o- almost everybody's um, drawing had these giant ears, right? And like the idea was, they don't, you know, voters don't actually expect you to do everything that they want, right? They understand you've got a lot of competing influences, but man, the one thing they absolutely require is that you hear them. So yeah, that was uh, that was one of the first first things that I discovered that. You got to be you got to be listening, um, and, and everybody needs to know you're listening, or you're you're not doing the job well, and ultimately you'll be cooked. Yeah. Well, you spent six years in the House of Representatives. You ran for Senate in 2012. You won there. You've been reelected to the Senate. Um, I want to ask you a few questions since you've you know, as I said, been a staffer. You now rely on staff work. What separates the outstanding staffer? From the average, in your mind, yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great question. I've you know, listen, I'm lucky in that I've had um, absolutely fantastic people work for me, um, and I think I've learned what I need from people over the years. And I think it's different for you know every level of uh, elected official. Um, you know, listen, first and foremost, I want people who are confident in their opinions and are willing to contest um, when they get pushback from me, right? I'm not looking for folks who are just going to take direction. I want to be intellectually stimulated, right? I want to sit around a room and hear people's views before I make up my mind. So that means I want folks who have opinions, right? Who are well-read, who aren't here to execute, but are actually here to, um, you know, to put forth a point of, uh, a point of view. Um, that to me makes a really good staffer. Um, creativity back to that first campaign I worked on, right? Bring me new ideas. Bring me something nobody else has done. One of the challenges in my office is that I have lots of ideas. I still have the same sort of thirst for ideas that I did when I was a a staffer. And so sometimes, you know, the folks who work for me can just wait for me to bring an idea. Well, I don't want that. I want people to come in with new ideas. I want people to walk in and, you know, examine how we can change uh, things. Third thing um, that um, I want from uh, from staff, and maybe the most important thing, um, is this. And I tell this to every single person who sits down and interviews for a job with me. These places, these political offices, they can be the most empowering, most exciting place to work, or they can be the most miserable place to work. And it all depends on whether people are kind to each other. Um, because these places, they don't work on the rhythms that anybody else does, right? It's all improvisation. One day you're doing one thing, the next day you're doing something different. And so in order to get through that lack of routine, um, you just need to be really nice. Um, You just need to be a fundamentally decent human being. And you need to go out of your way to treat those around you nicely, even on days that you were so frustrated because you thought you were going to be writing this speech and now you're writing a totally different speech. Your boss switched things up on you. Um, You just still have to treat people well because I've seen these offices be really toxic, um, but I've also seen them be the most exciting place in the world to work. So that to me is um, you know, the third and maybe most important thing I want in those, a staffer. Those are outstanding, those three. Um, if, if staffers could spend a day in the life of being the member, you know, the old Trading Places movie, what do you think they'd um, learn? 
Oh, that's a good question. I remember, and again, I'm talking a lot about Charlotte Koskoff here, but that was my first job, right? So I remember a lot about that first job being a campaign manager for her. I just remember being amazed that she had to know everything. Like I was campaign manager, so I technically had to know everything, but we kind of had a division of labor with the finance operations. So as campaign manager, you know, I had to know the field campaign and I had to know the media stuff, but I didn't need to know all the donors, right? Um, I think you sort of have to realize that in this is the one job in which you sort of have to know every piece. Um, you have to know every piece. And so um, I don't know that there's any wisdom I'm, I'm giving to staffers in that, but I guess that's the, 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 the singularity of the principal's role, right? Because staff come and go. Um, I'm lucky in that I've had most stay with me for longer than they often stay. But the sort of weight of being the one person who's got to be that continuity with donors, with activists, with groups, with issues, it's pretty substantial, right? To, to know that, like, if I don't remember the most important things, then I don't know that I can count on other people who aren't going to be here forever to to know them. I think that's the that's the most interesting difference to me. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the weight um, of of service and of being the principal, and it's a, a transition point for me to ask you about something that you have worked on. Um, since 2012, it was um, certainly a, a priority and an interest of yours beforehand, but the events uh, of Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012 changed uh, you know, the, the issue of gun control forever for the country. It broke all of our hearts. And you had just been elected to, Senate, to the Senate, I believe, and, and were taking office that January, and you have been... Um, I think it's fair to say the leading voice for sensible gun safety laws in the Congress uh, since that time. You wrote a book uh, about the issue of violence called uh, The Violence Inside Us. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that issue means to you, to the community, and how you proceed to work on it day in, day out, week in, week out, even in the face of current tragedies like that, just that which happened in at Oxford High School in Michigan this week, despite the steepness of the climb. Yeah, this, listen, this is, you know, very clearly been, has become the definitional issue of my public service. Um, it's not one that anybody seeks out. It, it, it came to me through the tragedy at Sandy Hook. Um, you know, as much as that day, you know, having been there at the firehouse, which is where the emergency was being managed, I was there all day and, you know, certainly saw and heard things that I, you know, wish that I didn't see and hear. Um, as heavy as that day was, I almost remember a day about a month later more acutely. And that was the first visit I made as a senator, having been sworn in just a couple of days earlier to the North End of Hartford. I went to a community center to meet with the parents of the victims of gun violence in the North End. I write about this in my book, but um, it was just sort of um, just crippling to me um, how upset they were. Um, they said, listen, nobody grieves for those parents in Newtown more than we do because we know what it feels like to lose a child. You don't. But where the hell have you been? 
you've been a senator. You've been a senator for you know only a week, but you were a congressman for six years. You were in the state legislature for eight. Why didn't you care about what was going on in the North End of Hartford until this tragedy happened at Sandy Hook? I was just mortified um, because I didn't have a good answer to that question. And I'm still embarrassed by the fact that it took Sandy Hook to open my eyes in the way they're open today to the uh, terror that exists in neighborhoods like the North End of Hartford, where kids fear for their life every single day when they walk to school or go to the corner bodega for, you know, a gallon of milk. Um, so, you know, my life is now consumed with this question, not just of school shootings, but you know, what ultimately my answer will be for those families in the North End. What have I done to try to make their kids' lives uh, different? Um, and I believe, and I've come to believe this, that this is, um, you know, a, 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 a social change movement, um, not unlike the civil rights movement or the marriage equality movement, that the, that the fight to make our streets safer um, is a long-term endeavor, right? Huge status quo interests that we're fighting against. Um, and that it means we have to be patient. It means that we shouldn't expect to have, you know, immediate victory. And that's, I think, in part what allows me to, you know, get through the the, the the tough times and to, you know, be able to endure when, you know, now almost nine years later, you know, we still haven't passed that big federal bill that I wish, that I wish we had. Um, you know, you write in your book about the moment you found out the key details about what happened at Sandy Hook. And I'm sure that what I'm about to describe is is similar when you hear about other tragedies in your state or elsewhere. They're often brought to you by a staff member, right? That is often how elected leaders get information because they're doing something else while their staff is, you know, tied into the, the news feed, so to speak. Um, and so they too, in moments of crisis, have to keep putting one foot ahead of the other. And the crisis can be a shooting. It can be a natural disaster. There are other types of things where staff are expected to keep on moving forward for their constituents. How do you lead in those moments to make sure, A, everyone you know stays focused and on mission, but also over time that spiritually they are you know, they have the resources to keep going. Yeah, this is obviously, you know, every issue is heavy, right? Um, you know, the consequences, you know, for families, you know, whether you're, you know, working on childcare, education, or gun violence, you know, are significant. This one is obviously a little different in that the constituency that, you know, we're working with on a daily basis is a constituency of victims and a constituency of parents and brothers and sisters who have lost, lost loved ones. And so, we do need to acknowledge, um, you know, this takes a toll. You know, and it gets me back a little bit to your question about what makes a good staffer. The other thing I, I would say is, you know, recognizing that um, your boss, the principal, is a human being just like you are, right? And, it, you know, that that means you got to be sensitive to that. Um, so on an issue like this, you know, I certainly do appreciate, you know, when staffers occasionally after a tough day of working on it will, you know, ask me how I'm doing. Um, I probably don't ask that enough of my staff, but it's important on these emotional issues to support each other. Um, I try to make sure that the people I'm hiring to work on these issues feel the injustice in the way that I do. And I want them to communicate that, right? Like I think sometimes staff think that, you know, they're not allowed to show some emotion, right, to, to, to connect in that way. 
and, and sometimes especially not around the boss, right? I think that's important. You know, I would, I'd, I want to know that the people who work for me, you know, care as much as I do about these victims and about these, these families. And so, you, you know, sort of wearing a little bit of this on your sleeve, I think is important, uh, important as well. Um, and, um, you know, I probably have other thoughts on it, but that's, I guess, where I'd start. Yeah. Well, something that you mentioned earlier was the the challenge of um, having to deal with any issue that may be super important and super timely, but also having to deal with like three or four of those at a time, right? right. Never being able to just focus. Um, I, I'm going to use that as a transition uh, to to ask about another issue, issue set where you have spent a lot of time, and that is in the area of foreign relations. You were one of the leading and most cogent voices um, calling for withdrawal from Afghanistan and and defending that decision uh, this past summer. My my question for you is, when did you, um, you know, look at your portfolio of issues um, as a, you know, as an elected leader coming up and say, foreign affairs is an area that I do care about. It's one that's important for the country, and it's one where my voice can be effective. So I ran for Congress in 2006. We talked about this briefly. Um, that was, you know, at the height of the war in Iraq. It was going very badly at that point. I was running as an opponent of the war, and I was running against, uh, again, Nancy Johnson, who was, if not a cheerleader of the war, silent in the face of a, a policy that was simply not working. Um, and so I was elected based on my opposition to the war. But once I got to Congress, I was uncomfortable with um, the fact that, well, I knew invading Iraq was not an answer to protect the country. I didn't have a great answer for how an alternative would be formed to protect the nation against terrorist attack, which in 2006, 2007 was something that America was still rightly obsessive over. Um, and so I started in the House of Representatives, but then much more fulsomely in the Senate, you know, exploring what an alternative is for someone that believes in America as um, a forward deployed force for good in the world, but thinks that the way that we have projected our power over the last 20 years, largely through the military, has done us more harm than good. It felt like intellectually I had an obligation, having gotten elected to Congress as an opponent of the war, to present an alternative. In the House, I, I don't know that I sort of had the ability to sort of give myself the room and the space to come up with that alternative. But once I got elected to the Senate and had six years, I you know, determined that I was going to a, do the study, and then B, propose that vision. And um, that's what I've done. I mean, listen, at, 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 at its essence, this job involves one primary responsibility, protecting this country and protecting your constituents from harm. So if you're not doing that job, right, if you're not spending some time worried about national security, then um, you're not doing the job. So it's a job requirement. It to me seemed an intellectual responsibility based upon the way that I had been uh, elected. Um, and what I discovered was that not a lot of people were doing that work. A lot of progressives had spent a lot of energy opposing the war, 
but didn't come up with an answer for what to do instead. And that left the playing field still occupied by the neocons and the hawks. Um, so whenever a new emergency came up, they were the only ones with the answer because we didn't have a well-constructed alternative. And that, to me, seemed an invitation to just repeat that mistake, that mistake of Iraq, over and over and over again. Um, you know, the, the, the topics that we've been talking about are huge, huge, complex problems. Uh, you know, both to solve in their substance and also politically, they're very thorny. And we, we're we coming up on the anniversary of January 6th, which is, a, you know, a, a tragedy in its own right, but also a, a point in time that made everyone wake up and say, wait, how are, like, what, how is the health of our institutions? How is our body politic? And is it capable of solving big, tough problems? We've certainly made some progress this past year in um, some much needed legislation that has been already passed into law. But I'm curious how you view the the institution of Congress today and um, how optimistic are you about its ability to solve problems in the coming 5, 10, 15 years? Well, I'm deeply, deeply worried about the health of our democracy. Um, but at the same time, I believe it is wholly within our control to save it and rescue it. I mean, I just think at our foundation, you know, we are a fragile nation because we have decided to organize ourselves around a form of government that 99.999% of humans have decided, have not lived under for good reason, right? We are naturally drawn to hierarchies. We are naturally drawn to unitary leaders. Um, that's why. Uh, our form of government is the wild exception to the rule. And so given that as a species, we are drawn towards hierarchies, given that almost everything else in our world does not run by democratic vote, right? Our workplaces, our kids' sports teams, our families. I think when we don't see democracy delivering, it's natural that we start to, and I say we, uh, that the country starts to entertain other offers. And I think that's what we're doing. I think what Donald Trump and his ilk is offering is this sort of neo-fascism or neo-authoritarianism that essentially says democracy is broken fundamentally, so it's time to move on to something else. And so that's why this year's agenda is so important, because this is the first time in my political life that we are not operating in the margins of people's economic lives. The ACA was not operating in the margins, but you know it was mainly about a group of people who didn't have insurance, who had serious medical issues. This bill, right, which is about childcare and early childhood and elder care and drug prices and Medicare. I mean, man, if we pass this, everybody, almost every single person in this life is going to see a reduction in cost or an increase in their quality of life. And maybe that's the thing that allows people to say, you know what, these guys are wrong. Democracy still can work. It's it can still materially affect my life. But if we don't pass this, if it just all collapses, man, it will be really dangerous um, fodder for this anti-democratic movement that is growing in strength. Yeah. Yeah, we, we need the investments badly to lift the population 
so that they aren't tempted by other forms of government. And we need to do work on our own uh, you know, rules and regs of elections so everyone's vote uh, is counted and everyone has access to the ballot, et cetera. Um, and if we get there, Senator, it will be because of work that you're doing and your staff is doing. So let me let me ask you my last question. Um, it might be my hardest one for you. I have this idea that uh, one day I'll raise the money uh, to build a Hall of Fame to staffers that can sit on the National Mall. And I'm taking nominations for who belongs in there. So if I were to give you a ballot and you could write a name or two on it, who would you nominate to the Staffer Hall of Fame? <laughs> that's like picking your, your children. <laughs> I know. That's why I said I knew it was going to be a hard question. Yeah. Well, I, okay. So I'm going to make it easy on myself. Um, I, uh, so you actually like are asking me to like name some of that's worked for me that I would put in the Staffer Hall of Fame. That's what you're asking me? Or it could be somebody who hasn't worked for you. It could be just oh. somebody who you've admired. It could be a leadership staffer. It could be some, you know, like it could be somebody else. Well, I, I'm gonna, I'll give you somebody that, that, that has worked for me and does work for me. Um, and it is probably not coincidentally the person that's worked for me the longest. Um, some of the toughest work to do in these offices is constituent service work, right? The folks who pick up the phone calls from people whose lives are broken, right? The point at which you contact your member of Congress, right? You're at a place of last resort. You have tried to get your Medicaid claim or your veterans claim or your immigration claim figured out through a whole bunch of other means. Finally, you say, I have to call my congressman. You're in a vulnerable place. You're in a difficult place. Often your temper may be a little short, right? Um, and so the folks that do constituent service, um, they are doing the Lord's work. Um, they often don't get a lot of attention uh, because they're, you know, they're 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 not writing the legislation. They're just helping to implement it. So Joanne Cannon um, uh, has worked for me uh, since I showed up in the House of Representatives. Um, she was actually a social work school intern on my campaign um, and never, ever left. And she now leads my casework operation in Hartford. I just have so much respect for the caseworkers um, because the work they do is hard. The people they're talking to have very frayed nerves. And in big offices especially, they get very little time with the boss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, the caseworkers um, get the least amount of time compared to the outreach workers, the press staff, and the policy staff you know, with the congressman or the senator. Um, and and yet they still just do their work and do it really well. So I don't know. If you raise the money, um, I will make a small <laughs> but meaningful donation and uh, I will nominate Joanne Cannon. That is a fantastic nomination uh, for all the right reasons. And I, I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate you, Senator. I, having um, gotten to watch when you first came to Washington and then observe all that you've done um, in the House and now in the Senate, I'm just so I'm I'm so impressed. I'm so happy for the people of Connecticut and for the country that we've got people like you um, in Washington leading your thoughtfulness and sincerity and diligence um, all come through. Um, and so, thank you for making time for me and my listeners today. But thank you for what you do. 
Well, let me just re- quickly repay the compliment in, in, in kind. This is um, a wonderful gift that you are giving, which is a, a focus on staff work, a focus on the people who are behind the scenes making this place work, and, and a focus on you know what is, when it's done right, a constant culture of self-improvement. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a gift um, to democracy itself, right, to have um, men and women who show up in these places healthy, willing to get better um, and, um, you know, feeling the sense of patriotism towards the country just as much as anybody whose name is on the ballot. So thanks for including me in this, Jim. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.